That was fantastic. Thank you, Joe. That was that was awesome. We got the violin going, and that was awesome. Great job, Miss Smith, with that. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this this good morning. It's the middle of February, and we should be having some ice or snow or delays or something like that. But instead, Father, the weather is is outstanding, and we thank you for that, God. We have no excuses for why uh, our lives are not uh, more accessible right now, and we thank you for that. God, we love to be at church on Sundays, and we thank you that you have put this in our hearts, God, because there are lots of other things that we could be doing, and, and quite frankly, Father, many things that we need to be doing right now, but this has become a heart and desire and even conviction of ours, God, that we should be here, that we want to be here, that we want to, uh, we want to hear those songs, Father. We want to ask for the rock of ages to hide us in him. We want, God, to ask the Spirit to breathe on us and to revive our weary hearts. But, Father, if that's going to happen, it will only happen through your word. And so we've gathered here for this reason. We ask now, Lord, as we go back to Mark chapter 9, that you would teach us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you would, turn in the Bible to Mark chapter 9. If you didn't bring one, you can use the Pew Bible there. It's page 928. We've been in Mark 9 now for several weeks. We will not finish Mark 9 today, but we're going to move right along. I want to say while you're turning there, uh, thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who participated in the 24 hours of prayer over the weekend. What an outstanding event. I am so incredibly uh, lifted and encouraged and refreshed every time we do this. We do it every six months, uh, and it's a great, great way for you to do something very small and be involved in the, in the work of the church and the work of the ministry. It happened from Friday at 5 p.m. until Saturday at 5 p.m. We just had people meeting here at the church for 24 hours straight, just praying, and do that however you want to. Pray with others, pray out loud, pray silently, walk and pray, sit and pray, whatever you want to. Just people here praying, and it was awesome. And so thank you. Uh, thank you for all of you who participated in that. There were a lot of people, a lot of involvement, and I can only, only uh, think of how many prayers were were. were brought to God this weekend, and now we're waiting to see uh, God answering those. What a blessing that is. So let's look at Mark chapter 9. We are now getting out of this transfiguration, Jesus talking about uh, his death and resurrection and his suffering that's coming, Jesus talking about uh, who do you say that I am. All of that's been somewhat lumped together, and we finished that last week. And so now the gospel of Mark keeps going with Jesus doing another miracle in the healing of a boy with a demon, demon-possessed, an unclean spirit. Read with me, if you will, at Mark 9. We'll read 14 through 29. When they came to the disciples, they saw a crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. He asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. 
And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can... All things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. You need to know something here at the very beginning. You need Jesus. I don't know if I've ever sung that song before, but I had heard it, and I called Joe this week and asked him if we could sing that song, that that Jesus is better, the, the new one that we just sang. Glory, glory, we have no other king. In that song, we are crying out for more faith. God, help me believe. God, calls me to believe. And in this passage, we have a father in a great, needful, needy position saying, I believe, help my unbelief. This whole passage from all angles is crying out to us that we need Jesus. You need Jesus. Jesus is the answer to life. I want to cover four points of our need for Jesus today. Four points. Number one, our need for Jesus against sin and evil. Number two, our need for Jesus in helping people. Number three, our need for Jesus in believing. And number four, our need for Jesus in the gospel ministry, in church work, in ministry. We need Jesus, okay? Our first is that our need for Jesus against sin and evil. Notice how this passage begins. It says they came to the disciples. They came because they had just been on the mountain. Remember that it was Jesus and the three inner disciples, Peter, James, and John. They had been on the mountain. They just had this amazing experience, maybe the highlight of their lives, if you will, but now they're coming down off the mountain. And we talked about that last week, that coming down off the mountain experience. And it even says, verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain. So They're coming down off of this uh, high place, and they're coming back to reality. They're coming back to uh, their normal lives. And in verse 14, it says they came to the disciples. So we're picturing the other nine, because Jesus had the three. They're 12 altogether, so there are nine here. And they're coming back to them. And, And quite honestly, what they come back to is completely different than what they had just come from. We need to know here today that so often life is this way. An excellent weekend can turn into a horrible Monday. A horrible 2016 can turn into a worse 2017, right? A good few years of raising your children can 
quickly turn into some troubling cheer, tr- troubling years in parenting. We see this in our passage here, that when they came back, they saw a great crowd around them, and the scribes are arguing with them. So picture Jesus, Peter, James, and John are coming off the mountain of transfiguration. Remember, Moses and Elijah was there, and it was amazing. And they come down, they find the other nine there, the scribes, a crowd gathering, and an argument's happening. Man, it just doesn't sound very encouraging. It doesn't sound good. Talk about a downer. This is an absolute downer for Jesus, Peter, James, and John. But downers are the reality, and I'm trying and to teach you all that. Life does not stay on the mountain, and I know you know it, but I want you to have a foundation in it. And they come back, and everybody is arguing. So when Jesus walks up, it says the crowd, they saw him, they're greatly amazed. They ran up to him, they greeted him, and he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Jesus seems to understand that he doesn't like his disciples arguing with these people. So he speaks to them, what's going on here? And so they get to the situation that there's a father here who has a son who's got a really, really difficult situation. And we just read it. It is. It's an evil spirit. It takes control of him. It makes him mute. It throws him down. He's grinding. He's rigid. He's foaming at the mouth. It's a tough situation. Very, very, very hard situation. So they're on the mountain in this high place, and they come down, and there's an argument going on. There's a crowd gathering. And really the reason why is even worse than that is... There's a little boy here who is suffering. A little boy here that's suffering. It's a situation where things aren't good. The passage goes on to say a little bit later that this evil spirit uh, causes the, the boy, even when he starts having these fits or seizures or, or whatever you would call them, it even tries to harm him. Which we're familiar with, with, with kids who... Um, have experiences like this and it, it breaks our heart and we feel for the child and for their family and just the heaviness of it and we, we want to help in a situation like that. But it seems to be a whole other level that behind it is not just a, a, a physical or mental or emotional handicap, but what actually is going on in our passage here is that the devil is involved in this. So it's not just that this family has a a heavy situation, but the devil is trying to cause pain. The devil is trying to hurt somebody. I want to remind you here today that this is consistent from the beginning of the Bible to the very end, that the devil is trying to ruin your life. Coast, if you will, say life is good all that you want to, think that if you keep your head up all the time that it will stay good. It's not true, and it's not the case. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Even now in Fairdale, Kentucky, he roams around like a lion seeking somebody to devour. And I dare say that some may be even getting devoured now. And the devil here is not just causing a kid to have uh, seizures. He's causing a family to have pain in which this devil is trying to hurt the boy. And it says that sometimes in his fits, he'll throw him into a fire, if you can imagine. I'm not so sure how strong your understanding is of the devil in Scripture, but please hear me. The devil's not just trying to get you to look away from Jesus. The devil's trying to kill you all the way together. Who wants to throw a kid into a fire? Only the evil one. 
Sometimes if he can't find a fire, he tries to throw him into water. He wants him to drown. He wants to ruin this kid and this family, and the evil one is doing this. It's an ugly, ugly situation. They come off the mountain, and this is what they encounter. So what's the need here? The need is to help. Help, help with this. We know that this is the need because, and we're going to get to this verse a little bit later, but if you look down to verse 22, the Father says, it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. Imagine being a dad who senses, in a very physical way, the devil's trying to kill my son. The devil is trying to kill my son and his very words to Jesus in verse 22, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and look right here, help us. There's the word, help us. So it's ugly, it's tough, and our need here is to work against sin and work against evil. And I want to let you know that there is no way apart from Jesus. In this situation, we see efforts, we see arguments, we see the Holy Spirit called, empowered disciples, we see all of this, but we see no, no real impact. We see an ugly situation that's not being dealt with. The need here is Jesus. We look around at our own personal lives we see the sin that is going on, that God has told us what is the way of life, and yet we can look in our own hearts, our own lives, and in the lives around us, example after example after example of people and ourselves not living the way God has told us to. We are sinful. We are wrong. We have rebelled. As we often quote around here, God's way is the best way. To not do it God's way is wrong. And this is what we have going on here, a picture of evil getting into the situation, the devil causing this family to feel some pain here. It's ugly, and we need to get rid of it. And there is no work apart from Jesus. Jesus' answer, if you will, if you look down to uh, verse 18, the man, the father, says, I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. They were not able to. We'll talk more about that on my fourth point, but notice that the situation is helpless here, that he's come to those who are helpers, and they're not helping. Verse 19, Jesus responds with, O faithless generation." Jesus didn't step in and say, well, that's all right, guys. You just needed me. It's one of those situations where you're, you're out in public, maybe at Walmart or a restaurant or whatever, and the person that you're working with can't seem to meet you where you're trying to have your need met. And you say, well, can I speak to a manager? And the manager walks up finally. Probably takes a while, manager, to get there. manager walks up, and it's an easy fix. All they had to do was this. Why would you even call me? You didn't need me to do this. Jesus speaks now to the disciples, listen to this, and lets us know that the disciples here are not operating off of faith. For whatever reason, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later, for whatever reason here, the disciples are looking at a situation that is a, an evil, sinful, devil-driven situation that they can't handle. 
They need Jesus. Jesus' claim here is, you faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? And I want to ask you here today, how many problems, how much waywardness, how much guilt and shame, how much error will we allow in our lives or in the lives of those around us and continue perhaps to go to methods that aren't the answer? So often Jesus and his word have taught us how we are to handle things, what direction we are to go, what we're to do, how to spend our money, how to save our money, how to love our people, how to exercise forgiveness, how to love a neighbor, how to love a stranger, how to love an enemy. We start operating and functioning in so many situations in our lives where we have not done it the way God has told us to do. Jesus' response to them is that they are a faithless generation. In other words, they're not a faithful people. They're not walking by faith. Their eyes are not on Jesus. Their aim is not to please him. And so, therefore, they have a great need, a need for Jesus in the face of sin and evil. I want to ask you here today, how much sin and evil is in your lives right now? Either your own personally, if you would be honest enough to admit that and confess your sin, or even around you. Perhaps you're like the Father here today thinking, this is just so hard. This is so hard. I know many people, we often are praying for them and asking how we can help, but I know many people that I, I just feel so bad for them. Their lives are so incredibly hard now. We have a lady in the church who has been in the hospital with her child at Coast Air Hospital now for a week. She's been in there for a long time, and surgery after surgery, and procedure after procedure, and it's just hard. How do you work? How do you pay bills? How do you feed the family? How do you do that if you're having to stay in the hospital 24-7 with your child? And my heart breaks for them. We have a great need for Jesus against sin and evil. I want to remind you that the, that the best of advice and the, and the best of uh, uh, seven-step plans to help you combat your sin and evil are not the way of trusting in Jesus, of bowing your knee and repenting of your sins and crying out to God. I must be honest with you all and this stage of my life, some of the absolute hardest stuff for me to do is to go home from work on any work day at 5, 5.30, 6 o'clock. Val and I talk about this often. This is the hardest two-hour window that we've ever experienced. We have a little baby who is getting tired by that time of the day and starting to look towards eating for the last time and, and going to bed. We have a four-year-old who is desperate for some love and attention, and we have a boy who's just woken up from his nap and ready to go with all of this energy, and we have two other boys who are getting home from school at four o'clock who are so wound up ready to go, and they need to do their homework, and dad's not home, he's coming home, and mom's trying to cook dinner, and we've got to be at ball practice in like 30 minutes, and it's horrible. There's no nice way to put it, there's no excuse for it, it is horrible horrible, and I'm pulling my hair out, losing my cool, and nobody's happy from five to seven trying to pull it together. I hope y'all don't ever stop by between five and seven. <laughs> but Val and I have often said, it just is hard. We don't want to quit. We don't want to not eat. We don't want to go out to dinner every day at 5 o'clock. We don't want to be mean to the kids. 
It's just hard and ugly. It's a season. It's a time. But we need to ask Jesus to help us in this very trying window of life. I learned just a few months ago from an older pastor, when you pull in the driveway, Josh, don't be on the phone. Don't just hop out of the car. Don't bolt inside. Stop and pray for those two hours may be the most important of your day. Pray. Get off the phone. Pray. God help. Give me strength. Give me energy. Help me to be able to try to give attention to five kids. Help me to be able to encourage a wife, a stay-at-home mom. Pray to God for help there. We need to recognize in these trying situations our need for Jesus. The disciples are coming off the mountain. Jesus coming off the mountain. They encounter evil, and the only answer is Jesus, and they figure that out. Secondly, our need for Jesus in helping people. Similar to point number one, but it's, but it's different. Look down at verse 18. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams, grinds his teeth, becomes rigid. So ask your disciples to cast it out. They were not able to. They weren't able to help me, he says. Verse 19. He answered, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirits saw him, this is very consistent with the Gospels, is it not? When the evil spirits see Jesus, the evil spirits are put on notice. They back down. They run. They're scared. They know. So when it saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. He fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked his father, how long has this been going on? And he said, from childhood. He goes on and on. He says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Verse 23, Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Come out. And he did. And he, he did. Jesus had helped. He looked dead. Verse 27, Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. There's a situation here where a man in his suffering with his son has a great need. He wants help. And the disciples aren't able to do it. I want to ask you here today if you're able to help anybody. During the 24 hours of prayer, in the first hour of prayer, which we started off Friday night at 5 o'clock, in that little window on a Friday night from 5 to 6, two different... Uh, needy slash homeless people stopped in, the doors were unlocked, and while we're praying, stopped in and needed help. Is there any way I can get $10? I got a doctor's appointment, I can't make it to it. I needed help. I don't know their motive, but they needed help, and we didn't, we didn't have a way to, to help them. Just so y'all know, we don't have any cash stored here. There's, if somebody comes asking for cash, we can't help. Now, if they ask for a diaper or, or some food, then maybe we can help. If one of y'all are here, I might turn to you all and say, do you have $10? But as far as the church having a spot, there's no cash here to give out to anybody. For several reasons, that's the, that's the way it is. We had a lady here with a little baby who was crying, saying we have zero food to get us through the weekend. 
we do have some food here, and we were able to help them. And there was a man here who was praying, heard her talking to me about her situation, and she had said she needed milk, and he gave $10 and said, here, go get you some milk. There are lots of needs around, and a lot of people asking for help. I want to ask you here today, are we helping people? We have a Dare to Care program. We feed teams from the local schools. We do lots of hospital visits. The church is open, and we are trying to get our hands on as many people in the community as we possibly can. But I want to ask you, are we ultimately helping people? And I want to turn you back to Jesus and wanting us to see that as long as we are only meeting those physical needs, we are not content with that, for we are wanting people to find Jesus. We are wanting to be able to meet people's physical needs that it may open a door or build a bridge that we could start to talk about a spiritual need. For our hearts have a great need inside of them to know Jesus, and this is what we see here. It's fascinating how Jesus knows as soon as he arrives that he's going to be able to kick that evil spirit out of there. He's going to be able to build this young man up. He's going to be able to take the boy who looks dead and make him back alive. He knows that. But it's fascinating how the passage turns to faith and Jesus speaks to faith and Jesus empowers the father's faith. This is what's going on here. And I so want us as a people to get the, the, the two-way street, to get the, 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 the flow of we want to help people. You need clothes. You need food. You need love. You need prayer. You need anything. Come here. We can help. That is why our church's mission statement says, loving and serving both God and people. What can we do to help? But that mission statement also includes that we exist to proclaim Jesus. For we are aware here, secondly, our need for Jesus in helping people. Notice in this passage that Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the force. He is the dominant one who's able to do it. John MacArthur says, His his healings demonstrated his deity by power over the natural world. He was able to take a boy who's dealing with all of this and make him okay. He was. But he also says that Jesus' authority over demons demonstrated his deity by power over the supernatural world. So Jesus takes a boy having seizures seizures and and foaming at the mouth and all that and makes him calm. And Jesus takes an evil spirit that's calming it, kicks it, that's causing it, kicks him out and, 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 and makes all that calm. Makes the whole scene calm. Jesus, being God himself, is able to, to, to fix our situations, help the physical, and fix our situations, help the spiritual. Do you understand? The Bible teaches us that God will change our hearts, and in changing our hearts will bring peace to our souls, and bringing peace to our souls will slowly but surely begin to work in our circumstances. Maybe not change our circumstances, but change who we are in our circumstances. The Bible teaches us through the wisdom of God that the presence of God being inside of us will not only change our eternity and change our spiritual lives, but it will begin to have effect, mostly emotionally, on our physical lives. Our spiritual lives and our physical lives are changed by Jesus. And as a church, I want us to be a people who understand our need for Jesus in helping people. We've got to be careful to make sure that we're not just doing things. 
We've got to be careful that we're not wanting to just go and, 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 and give food or give money or, or give a hug and it not be able to be uh, uh, pushed or involved with pointing people toward Christ. How much has been done under the umbrella of church or ministry that has never yielded any fruit? How much have you done in your life that was not done in the name of Jesus? In this situation, what do we have? A father that needs help. And think about this. The scribes couldn't. They're arguing about it. The disciples couldn't. They're arguing about it. Listen to me. The believing dad couldn't. The believing dad couldn't help this situation. No one in the crowd could. They had gathered around. Jesus could. Jesus could help the situation. As we read the Bible and we see what's going on in Jesus' life, we see a man who has compassion on people. We see a man, Jesus, that cries for people. We see a man, Jesus, who's not turned back by anybody. He was comfortable helping people regardless of how distant or wayward or dirty or whatever else they were. Jesus was okay with it. And in the most masterful way that is such an example to us, Jesus was able to give somebody water or bread or food or clothing or heal their illness or heal, heal, heal their problem and yet combine it with a talk about heaven, hell, sin, forgiveness. This is what it means to help somebody. May we be bothered by the idea of a relationship with someone that we think may be helping them if they're still going to go to hell. If they've not considered their sins. If they've not considered their eternity. If they've not thought about facing the judgment. At the end of the day, have we really helped them? There was a lot of effort in this passage. But the man had not really been helped until Jesus healed his son. Our need for Jesus in helping people. Number three, our need for Jesus in believing. Look at verse 22. Jesus said to him, if you can, and this is, this is somewhat of a funny thing because it's somewhat of a challenge to the Father. The Father in verse 22 has said, if you can do anything, that's funny to say to Jesus, right? And perhaps you've prayed that way before. I know I find myself saying that all the time. God, if you can do anything, I'm about to walk in this house at 5 o'clock, and God, if you can do anything, help it. And here we have the Father saying to Jesus, if you can do anything. Folks, let me remind you, and Jesus is about to remind him, God can do anything. Anything. Last night, me and the boys were excited to watch the much-anticipated game between the Golden State Warriors and Oklahoma City Thunder. It was the Warriors' first game at Oklahoma City this year. It means it was Kevin Durant's first time back there. It was really, really hyped up, and there were some great commercials during that game of... 
uh, Kevin Durant. There's that one commercial of the boy who's raised by a single mom. I don't know if you've seen this extended commercial. It's, a, it's an insurance commercial. And the boy thinks he's about to meet his or, or see his mom or something like that. And they surprise him and they bring Kevin Durant into this, this little waiting room. And the little boy had been praying and all of that. And Kevin Durant comes in and sits down and talks with him. And he, he's just having a little good time with him and an encouraging moment. And he says, well, let me tell you something that my mom always told me. And she would write it down for me and she would stick it above my bed. And Kevin Durant took a little note card and he wrote it down for this young boy and he wrote on there, all things are possible. And he said to the boy, why don't you stick this on your bed? That's what my mom always did to me. He said, I want you to know that all things are possible and I've always grown up knowing that all things are possible. Kevin Durant's story is that he was raised by a single mom. They were dead broke, a house with no furniture, a fridge with no food. That was his life growing up, and now he's, you know, on top of the world, figuratively speaking, as far as sports and basketball and finances go. But it was a neat moment for me to be able to say to the boys, all things are possible, boys. The Bible says, with God, all things are possible. Not all things are possible, but with God, all things are possible. Jesus would go on to say that with us, it is impossible. With God, all things are possible. And in this situation, this man seems to have forgotten that with God, all things are possible. He says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Well, if there is anybody in your life, in your world, who can have compassion on you, who can help you, if there's anybody who can do anything, it is Jesus. And I am praying and now preaching that that would be your foundation. Jesus answers in verse 44, sorry, verse 23. If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. What a statement. I don't know if you know this statement, but you need to. I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus has just said, I can help. Jesus just said, I can have compassion on you. I can do anything that I need to be able to do. This is here. If you'll believe, I can do anything. That's what Jesus says to him. And the man's response is, I believe. But in the most beautiful passage for us, and very helpful and instructive, his belief is not this shallow belief. His belief is not this just a response to Jesus to try to see if Jesus will do what he wants him to do. His belief is as heartfelt as heartfelt can be, and he is honest with us when he says, I also struggle to believe. I believe, help my unbelief. And if we're honest with ourselves, that is us so often. That's me and that's you. Do we believe in Jesus? Yes, we absolutely do. I had a college student open up to me this week, one I'd never really had a deep conversation with, and we were able to spend some time together this week, and he, he came out and said to me that ever since the last couple of years, life's just not been going really well, and I asked him if he was uh, a believer in Christ. He said, well, I used to be until I was 14. I said, well, what changed? He said, I don't know. Life just got hard. So we, we, were, we were meeting, and we were talking, and I said, are your, are your sins forgiven? And he said, well, I don't know. He, he forgives everybody's sins, don't they? I said, well, no, not necessarily. He does not forgive everybody's sins. I said, well, talk to me about that. Are your sins forgiven? He said, well, I'll tell you what. I believe, but it's just hard to believe. That gets to the heart of kind of where we're at sometimes, isn't it? 
This father speaks up and says that he believes, but he asks God for help in his unbelief. Let me make very clear here today, folks. The only way for you to know God and the only way for you to be saved and go to heaven is for you to believe in the work of Jesus. That Jesus Christ is God, that he can do anything, and that he died on the cross for our sins. And when he died on the cross for our sins, listen to me, God was punishing Jesus for what you've done. God was pouring out his wrath and judgment on his son so that he would not pour it out on us. And three days later, God raised him from the dead to show that God's in charge, that God wins, that God reigns, and that Christ is the king, that he is the victor, that Jesus reigns. And if anybody would believe that and cry out to God for the forgiveness of sins, then they will be saved. This is at the very heart of all passages of Scripture. This is the point and meaning of all passages of Scripture that you would trust in Jesus for salvation. So it's a big statement when this father says, I believe, help my unbelief. I want to read to you this great quote here from one commentator, James Edwards. He says, true faith is always aware how small and inadequate it is. The father becomes a believer not when he amasses a sufficient quantum of faith, but when he risks everything on the little faith that he has. When he yields his insufficiency to the true sufficiency of Jesus. He says, I do believe. Help my unbelief. The risk of faith is more costly to the father than bringing his son to Jesus. For he can talk about his son, but he must cry out for faith. Listen to this. True faith takes no confidence in itself. You know, in sports, we often hear, just got to keep believing, got to keep believing. That's not what I'm talking about. We're talking about a real faith in the work of Christ. God, the cross, sin, death, resurrection, believing that those things are true for us in the love of God that we might be saved. That's what we're talking about, faith in says here that truth faith takes no confidence in itself, nor does it judge Jesus by the weakness of his followers. Amen. It looks to the more powerful one who stands in the place of God, whose authoritative word restores life from chaos. True faith is unconditional openness to God, a decision in the face of all to the contrary that Jesus is able. Amen that regardless of what this situation looks like, can you imagine being the dad? Do you know how many times he'd probably been to Coast Air Hospital with his kid? Do you know how many times he had been to the ER because his kid almost drowned, because his kid almost burned up? Do you know how many times he'd been called from school because the kid just had another episode and he had to go get his kid? This father has been through it, and he finds Jesus' disciples, and they can't help. The crowd can't help. The scribes can't help. Nobody can help, but he finally gets to speak to the king himself and he says if you can and let me remind you he can he says Jesus help me believe help me believe we need to ask God to help us believe we need to remember this short little verse and we also need to pray I believe help my unbelief J.C. Ryle says, It is of the utmost importance to our comfort to know that a true believer may be known by his inward warfare as well by his inward peace. That inside of you may be peace that you're trusting in Christ and also a warfare that there are areas you struggle to trust. 
I want to ask you here today, are you believing in Christ? Have you come to the point, because I, I know it's bothering you, have you come to the point that you'll accept Jesus at his word? Have you come to a point to allow Jesus to say what is sin and you to admit that it's sin? Have you come to the point in life that, where you're willing to stand with God even if everybody else does not? Are you willing to stand with God and let everybody else ridicule? Or are you still being controlled by what if they ridicule? Do you believe him? Do you believe his word? Do you believe that it's okay to say that you're wrong? Are you okay to admit that you have flaws? Are you okay to admit that you have weaknesses? Are you believing in Christ? You know, there's a tendency for us to say, you know, I'm not that bad in trying to make us sound better where really our language should be, I'm really not that good. And it gets to the heart of the person who needs Christ when they view themselves as I'm not that good and rather as I'm not that bad. We need Jesus to help us believe. I want to remind you that the Bible teaches through and through that faith is a gift from God, that we are not a believing people until God has given us faith. And we must be crying out to him to help us believe. Lastly, number four, our need for Jesus in ministry, gospel ministry, and church work. I want you to recognize in this passage, if you look at the very end, verse 28, they couldn't do it. It's, it's, it's a troubling situation for the disciples. Look at verse 28. When he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? Why couldn't we do it? Jesus, we're, we're your dudes. You've already, you've already told us to go and do these things. Why couldn't we? If you turn back just a couple pages, chapter 6, verse 13. Look at chapter 6, verse 13. This is when Jesus has sent out the twelve to go and do his work and to, to heal and cast out demons. Look at verse 13, it says, And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Did everybody see that? The disciples had done it before. Jesus had told them that this is what they were going to do. And now an opportunity arises where a dad comes in desperation and asks them to do it and they can't. And the disciples don't have a reason for it. They're kind of puzzled. They're bothered by it. An argument is arising. And so they ask in verse 28, why couldn't we? Verse 29 here, Jesus answers and says, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. But if you remember what we read in Matthew chapter 17, what Austin read, Jesus said there, it's because they didn't have enough faith. Remember, that's where he talked about the mustard seed. You need more of a faith, a stronger faith, a more real faith. But it begs the question, but they did in chapter 6. What's changed? Perhaps this is the way life goes. Perhaps we in our faith are a little more up and down than we'd like to admit. Perhaps last week you were a little more faithful than you were today. Let me remind you that Jesus just recently had brought up the hard stuff again, had he not? In chapter 8, when they confess that he's the Christ, Jesus speaks up with, I'm about to be rejected. I'm about to be suffer. I'm about to suffer. They're about to kill me. And Peter does not like that. And he pushes back. 
When they're coming down off the mountain in chapter 9, just our passage from last week, Jesus reminds them that he needs to rise from the grave. And it says there in in, in chapter 9, verse 10, that they were questioning. What does it mean he needs to rise from the grave? See, the disciples at times had been very much so understanding where they were with Christ. But in this little episode in the Gospel of Mark and in the life of the disciples, the disciples are not understanding the work of Christ. The disciples were not able to do the miracle that needed to be done. They're not grasping who Jesus was. I want to remind you here as a church that we're in a dangerous spot when we think we can just go through the motions. If we think we can represent God Almighty and point people to salvation without prayer, without the Holy Spirit, without God doing the work, then we're wrong. We are very wrong. If we think we're good enough at life that we can help people who are bad at life, then we're as arrogant as we come. If we think if they'll just do it the way we're doing it, life will work out for them, we've misunderstood grace. We need Jesus if we're going to be a church. If you're going to love your neighbor and point somebody to Christ, if you're going to really encounter the issues of our world today, and you're going to try to do it with your own understanding, your own education, or your own little bubbles experience, you are wrong. We need Jesus. We need Jesus. In John chapter 15, Jesus brings up the last of the I am statements. The last of the I am statements is, I am the true vine. You remember that one? Jesus says, I'm the true vine, and y'all are the branches, and if the branches aren't connected to the vine, the branches can't bear fruit. And that's right. You know that, right? I don't know if you've ever trimmed the bushes at home, but if you cut those branches off, they're done. No more fruit coming. Right after that, in verses 4 and 5, listen to me. Jesus says it point blank, crystal clear. Guys, apart from me, you can do nothing. Is there some evil, sinful stuff in your life without Jesus? Ineffective. Have you been trying to help anybody? Have you been trying to serve in one of our opportunities here at church to help somebody? Without a surrender and faith in Jesus, ineffective. Have you been trying to believe more? Have you been trying to get your kids or your neighbors to believe without the work of Christ and the message of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit and prayer, ineffective. Have you been inviting somebody to church for 10 years now and they've never come, but you've never been on your knees for them or you've never explained to them the work of Christ, ineffective? Have you seen churches, and it breaks my heart to say it, have you seen churches and pastors and church people who've just become good people. They never really impact a life. They never really see somebody come to know God. They never really see life change. They never really see somebody turn from their sins. It's ineffective. Because the key to it all is Jesus himself. May God help us. Father in heaven, thank you for this passage.
the miracle of Jesus healing a young boy. Father, thank you that the Father cries out, I believe, help my unbelief, God. And in that, we are encouraged to be believing in you. Oh, Father, help us now with our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.